Welcome to Grace Community Church On Demand, the weekly podcast from the Sunday services at Grace Community Church in Rupert, Idaho. Here at Grace, we believe in building the kingdom of God one person at a time. We're passionate about loving God, loving people, and following Jesus. Let's get into this week's message with Pastor Travis Turner. Dr. David, come up here. He doesn't need a an introduction or anything like that. We all know who he is. If you guys can just put your hands together for Dr. Dave Miller. Good morning, Grace Church. How are we doing today? We got Thanksgiving out of the way. How many people survived Thanksgiving? Woke up from your food coma? So how many people would say that their Thanksgiving was great, no big deal, went off without a hitch, hip, hip, hooray? And how many people, when they got done with Thanksgiving, felt like Clark Griswold at the end of the movie? <laughs> Our, ours was somewhere in between. Uh, we made the mistake of inviting too many people over, and they ate all of the turkey. And so we felt a little bit like the dad at the end of the Christmas story, cursing the bumpus hounds for eating their turkey. Won't name any names, but they know who they are. Darn bumpus hounds. No, we had a great time. Uh, winter has definitely arrived in Minicasia. Holy smokes. We had a little snow apocalypse, and then this morning I woke up, and the house seemed a little cold, and I'm like, dang, is the heater not working? No, the heater was working. It was just cold outside. So, but it's warm in here, and that's a good thing. This is also the beginning of the holiday season here at Grace, and we just heard about all the fun things happening during the month of December, so we're excited about that. And I thought as we're starting off this morning that we would just take a few minutes and talk about some different, perhaps strange holidays from each month, some of which you might be well acquainted with and some of which you might think I'm even making stuff up. And I'm not making any of these up. So on January 1, we have Polar Bear Plunge Day. There will be a sign-up seat in Travis's office. January 21st is Squirrel Appreciation Day. Uh, folks in uh, Charles Kors Cosplay Group know exactly who that's about. Shout out to Lydia, Squirrel Girl herself. And then January 25th, National Bubble Wrap Appreciation Day. Or as my head nurse calls it, every day. Which is why we don't let her have bubble wrap. February 2nd, Groundhog Day. Everybody knows about this. The interesting thing is my dad's birthday was on February 3rd. And so for a long time, I really struggled with keeping the two straight. You know, one is Groundhog Day, the other is his birthday, which is which. And then I learned in med school that if you have two different things with two different answers, you don't have to remember them both. You just have to remember one. And this is the one and the other is the other. So Groundhog Day is February 2nd and the other is the other. So it's really simple. Lame Duck Day, February 6th, recognizes lame duck politicians, which is people that have been voted out of office and just completing their term, or simply people who are planning to retire that year. So here's all the lame ducks coming up. And then February 16th, National Do a Grouch a Favor Day. Figured this would be a thing on Sesame Street, but it's not, apparently. But I'm sure that several of you are making mental lists for when this comes around. March 4th and Do Something Day. March 4th and Do Something Day. 
Wives will have this circled on their calendars now, I'm sure. Pi Day, March 14th, 314. Folks in Declo, that's like one of those math things that you learned about and never need to know about anymore. Maybe a couple of us, most of us not. And then National Countdown Day, March 21st, 321 for the Oakley people. Okay. Yes, we pick on everyone up here. April 1st, April Fool's Day. In 1852, the French switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. And this moved New Year's Day from April 1st to January 1st. And folks who missed this were called April Fools. And thus a tradition was born. And with all, as with all important things, there's an episode of MASH. The end of season eight. April 3rd, National Find a Rainbow Day. But people will probably be suspicious and not believe you because it's just two days after April 1st. You'll get it later. And National Jelly Bean Day, April 22nd. Seems like a good idea to me. This holiday doesn't have a specific day. Sometime in April and May, you have the Ninana Ice Classic. So in Ninana, Alaska, many of you remember we lived in Alaska for about 10 years. This is a contest to guess the exact time and day that the winter ice will break up on the Tanana River, making way for springtime. So a giant wooden tripod is set on the ice, except that this tripod has four legs. Tripod has... Early service was much more awake than you guys. It's a little bit like, you know, we live in this tri-cities region of Burley, Rupert, Paul and Hayburn. So the giant tripod is set on the ice, and there's a, a line that's tied on the top of the tripod, and it goes to a clock on the shore in this clock tower. When the ice melts, the tripod falls over, trips the clock, and the clock is stopped, and then that's when the winter is declared. The tradition started during an especially long winter in 1917 when a group of railroad engineers first place bets on when the Tanana River would break up. So what was going on at that time is in the winter, they would just build a bridge across the ice. I mean, in Fairbanks in the wintertime, the Chena River becomes a thoroughfare through town because it's frozen. It's frozen deep. The last time I went ice fishing in Alaska, we had a four-foot auger with a four-foot extension, and we barely got through. I felt pretty safe on that ice. Then I moved to Michigan, and those knotheads are, ooh, it's two inches of ice, let's go fishing. No. Um, but yeah, so we drive on the ice, do all these things, and so they would build the, the bridge, the railroad bridge, they would build on the ice going across the river, which is a pretty bodacious thick ice. And then when the river would break up, it would sweep the bridge away, and they'd have to rebuild it. So they were very interested in when this was going to happen. They started placing bets on it. More people got involved every year, and since this ex since its inception, over $10 million in prize money has been given away. You can get online, the United Ice Classic, have a look, place your bets, the Alaska State Lottery. In May, Batman Day is May 1st. That didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, and then I did some more digging, and apparently Batman made his debut in Detective Comics in the early part of May in the 1930s. Star Wars Day... May the fourth be with you. Do we really need to say any more? 
And then National Talk Like Yoda Day, May 21st, because Empire Strikes Back was released on May 21st. Again, we don't need to explain these things. June, June 2nd is leave the office early day, or for a lot of folks here, opening day of your favorite hunting season, or the second day, or the third day, or whichever day. There's at least one person in this church that would leave an audience with the Pope or a head of state or even the president for the opening of pheasant season. It's a thing. And then June 15th, National Nature Photography Day, also known as Jim Metzger Day. July 2nd, World UFO Day. What that has to do with July 2nd, I have no idea. July 19th, National Get Out of the Doghouse Day. So this is there specifically for all the guys that did not march forth and do something. Or even worse, they inaccurately read their wife's mind and marched forth and did the wrong thing. So this allows them to finally get out of the doghouse. And then July 22nd, Pi Approximation Day. 7 over 22 is the fractional approximation of Pi. For you folks in Declo, it's a math thing. Don't worry about it. Perhaps one of my favorite in this list, National Presidential Joke Day on August 11th in 1984, right in the middle of the Cold War, during a sound check for his regular Saturday evening radio broadcast on NPR, President Reagan made the following joke. He thought it was a cold mic. My fellow Americans, I am pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. He didn't know that it was a hot mic. It didn't get broadcast to the world, but it did get leaked to the world. And so eventually it showed up on the front page of the London Standard. CBS aired it on its Monday evening report. The Kremlin heard about it. They were terrified because when Dutch spoke, things happened unlike more recent times. Um, and thus, a tradition was born. August 21st, Spumoni Day. How many people know what Spumoni is? For you fortunates who are ignorant, um, Spumoni is this ice cream that they take the little candied fruit bits that you put in fruitcake, which actually have a name. They're called cutlets. They're made in Sela, Washington. These things are nasty. <laughs> this is a result of the fall. And you put them in ice cream. So you're basically taking a perfectly good food and ruining it. And somebody thinks we need a day for this. Speaking of fruitcake, fruitcake is such an amazing thing that in Michigan, there's a family that has a fruitcake that is almost 140 years old. It tastes exactly the same as it did. Apparently, an ancestor of the family made this fruitcake a gazillion years ago. They died before the fruitcake could be served, and so the family thought preserving this fruitcake somehow honored this person's memory. Tells, tells you about how good they are to eat if you just keep it for 140 years without eating it. September 1st, no rhyme or reason day, kind of like fruitcake. Um, September 19th, arg, international talk like a pirate day, matey. Also known as Daniel Jones's favorite day. Um, rumor has it that um, he's advocating for a pirate-themed VBS this summer using <clears throat> the Pirate Bible. 
Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there is a translation of the Bible in pirate speak. For details, see online. Just search piratebible.com. October 1st, International Coffee Day. We're in my house every day. Uh, October 17th, National We're Something Gaudy Day. Or for certain folks around here, often. You know, those, those Raider things, those Chiefs things, those Miami Dolphin things, you know. November 2nd, Deviled Eggs Day, or in the church in which I grew up the last Wednesday of the month, when we would have our monthly business meeting with potluck. And you had to bring deviled eggs. Which, how many of you have ever noticed, if someone makes you a three-egg omelet, you really struggle to eat the whole thing, but they put a plate of deviled eggs in front of you, and you've tossed down a dozen of them before you even realize you started? I don't really get that. And then Fibonacci Day. This is another math thing for folks from Declo. Um, the Fibonacci sequence is this really weird mathematical sequence where you start with one, you take the number before that, which is zero, and add to it, so you get one again. Take the number before that and add to it, and you get two. And you keep doing this sequentially, and one, one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen. It goes on and on and on. And there's all kind of weird things that people do with this. Um, and again, like a lot of math things, you learn about it in school, and it doesn't really matter. There you go. Um, December 17, National Ugly Christmas Sweater Day. Notice this is exactly two months to the day after National Wear Something Gaudy Day. And I see you guys, I hear your thoughts. Don't be hating on Snoopy. <laughs> and finally, December 26, Boxing Day. No one really knows why the day after Christmas is called Boxing Day, but in England it was custom for the servants to trade places with the masters of the manor on this day. In the military, the officers would trade places with the enlisted ranks, and of course there was an episode of MASH, it was the day after Christmas. But today we're going to talk about another holiday. Today we're going to talk about Hanukkah. How many people know what Hanukkah is? More people will be able to raise their hands soon. Wait, isn't that a Jewish holiday? Well, yeah. But as we're going to see today, hopefully, there's something in it for us that would be interesting to know about and think about. So, happy Hanukkah. It's a little bit early yet, but who cares? So the history of Hanukkah is told in the books of First and Second Maccabees. These are part of what we call the Apocrypha, this series of books that were written mostly in the intertestamental period. Um, their origins are uncertain. Um, they're not considered uh, canonical or inspired by either Jewish or Christian uh, traditions. The Catholic Church contains, puts them in what they call the deuterocanonical books, meaning they're part of their Bible, but they're of lesser authority than the rest of Scripture. The story of Hanukkah is also told in Josephus and other historians, and so that's part of how we know that the story in First and Second Maccabees is reliable. Around 200 B.C., Antiochus III was a Syrian Greek or Seleucid ruler who took over control of Judea. This is after... The, the exile in Babylon and Assyria, and they had been released, and uh, many of them had returned to Jerusalem, but many of them had been scattered throughout the known world. And so 
Antiochus III allowed Israel to continue their worship and traditions. However, his son, Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, outlawed Jewish worship and practice. And in 168 BC, he so despised the Jews and their culture and their religion that he desecrated the temple by erecting an altar to Zeus inside the temple and then sacrificed pigs on the holy altar. On learning about this, a priest by the name of Mattathias led a rebellion along with his sons. One of his sons was known as, are you ready for this? Judah the Hammer. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the best Bible name ever. Also known as Judas Maccabee in Aramaic, which is why the band of rebels was known as the Maccabees. And the books chronicling their exploits would be known as the first and second books of Maccabees. After defeating Antiochus and the Seleucids, they worked to cleanse and rededicate the temple. The word Hanukkah literally means dedicate, and it's called the Feast of Dedication. When they lit the sacred lamp, there was only enough consecrated oil for one day, but it burned for eight days until more oil could be prepared. This is known as the miracle of the oil. Some of you remember my friend Ellis, who's been here a couple of times, preached a couple of times. Um, he's a Jewish believer, works with Campus Crusade. And back when I first got interested in Hanukkah, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, just almost more as a, as, as a joke than anything else, I would send him Hanukkah cards. And back in the day, you guys remember, there were these little animated greeting cards you could send online. And there was one that I found that I sent to him a couple of times. It's this little cartoony, little old Jewish grandma lady with kind of that stereotypical Brooklyn Jewish accent. Now the story of Hanukkah is that you had these people that desecrated the temple and then these men came in and cleaned the temple and then they lit the lamp and there was only enough oil for one day but it burned for eight days. And this is how we know that this is a myth because no men ever cleaned anything. <laughs> there you go. So in the midst of all this, Judas Maccabee was killed in the insurrection, but his nephew, John Hyrcanus, was eventually named Ethnarch, which is a fancy word that means ethnic ruler, uh, not king, because he wasn't of the royal tribe of Judah. Some of you remember the Davidic covenant. David, God made a covenant with David that a, a, a descendant of your line would always sit on the throne of Israel. And because these guys were priests, they were Levites, they were of the tribe of Levi, not of the tribe of Judah. Uh, he couldn't be king, so he was named Ethnarch. He was given this big fancy title of basically ruler for life. And there were those that sought to proclaim Hyrcanus to be Messiah. But it wasn't possible since he was a Levite. And, and we learned in the book of Acts that as the disciples are being persecuted and they're dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, that a, 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 a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel steps forward. He was Paul's teacher when he was a Pharisee and remains to this day one of the two or three most important Jewish rabbis in history. And he tells them, you really just need to leave these men alone because if what they're doing is of God, you can't stop them. And if, they're, if, they're, if their leader was one of these so-called messiahs and he lists several of them, then it'll all come to nothing anyway. And so since we had Hyrcanus, that they wanted to make Messiah, but wasn't, 
wasn't of the right lineage to be Messiah, and we had all these other would-be Messiahs that had come along, then it suddenly it makes sense why Matthew and Luke would, in the early parts of their Gospels, have an, uh, a genealogy of Jesus, showing that he was, in fact, of the right lineage and the right background to be Messiah, as he was claiming. So when does, when does Hanukkah happen? Uh, on the Jewish calendar, it happens from 25 Kislev until 2 Tevet. So the Jewish calendar, some of you remember, um, is a lunar calendar. The, the Jewish life, the Jewish year is ordered based on cycles of the moon. So many of their festivals correspond with the new moon. Um, and that differs from our calendar. We, we have our calendar is a solar calendar. So the cardinal dates on our calendar are, are, um, are spring and, and fall equinox and summer and winter solstice. These are, these are solar days. Jewish calendar is based on lunar days. So this year, Hanukkah is from December 7 to December 15. And you see here all these other, there are, there are a number of festivals that are commanded in the, in, 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 in the Torah. These are called the Levitical feasts. And three of these are called pilgrimage feasts. And so one of them up here at the top is Passover. You guys remember from, um, from the Exodus, they were commanded to kill a lamb and to put the, the blood on the doorposts and lentil of their house so that the death angel would pass over during the 10th plague. This also corresponds with the wheat harvest. And then Fast forwarding a little bit is the festival of weeks, also known as Pentecost, which corresponds with the wheat har- with the Passover corresponds with the barley harvest. Pest festival of weeks corresponds with the wheat harvest. It also, interestingly enough, corresponds with when Moses is traditionally thought to have come down from Sinai with the with the law, with the Ten Commandments. And of course, many of you recognize immediately the word Pentecost, and that was the day in which the Holy Spirit made his debut and, and made himself known. And then uh, the Feast of Tabernacles down here, which corresponds with the fruit harvest, um, which, which commemorates Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And so for a week, they would live in these temporary shelters. Um, one is called a sukkah. A group of them are called sukkot. And, and to remind them of their dependence on God and how he uh, cared for them and rescued them while they were wandering in the wilderness. And then you keep going around into the winter and you get Hanukkah. So it's Hanukkah in the Bible. One point of fact it is. In John 10, verse 22, the Bible mentions, just John just kind of almost mentions it as a throwaway, that they were in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Dedication, which is another word for Hanukkah. Remember we said that Hanukkah means to dedicate refers to them cleansing and rededicating the temple. And it happened during this 400 years of silence after the last Old Testament prophet, which was Malachi, and before the angel appeared to Zechariah to announce the coming of John the Baptist. During this time, there was nothing. There was no word from God. From the perspective of the New Testament writers, it was the most recent of Israel's miraculous deliverances and was extremely significant. This is a festival that Jesus and his family and his disciples would have celebrated. So what is Hanukkah not? So Hanukkah is not Jewish Christmas. 
we sometimes confuse it as such, mostly because it happens around the same time. It's, it's usually in late November, early to mid-December, but depending on where the dates fall, sometimes it's in late December and even corresponds with, with Christmas. But Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, which in Judaism has not been recognized yet. And some Jews would even go so far as to say it's not going to happen. Hanukkah is the celebration of one of Israel's miraculous deliverances, and so it's much more closely related to Purim, which is the festival that was, that was outlined in the book of Esther after God miraculously delivered them from Haman. So why is this important to us today? Well, this 400 years of silence is an incredibly important time. So you had the Old Testament, book of Malachi. Malachi makes all these proclamations about not serving God. You're not serving God. You're not giving your tithes and offerings, and judgment is coming as a result. And then the word of the Lord stopped. From a Jewish perspective, this period of time saw the closing of the Jewish canon. No further writings recognized as inspired by Jews happened at that point. And no further writings recognized as, as, as inspired by Christians happened after that point. It also saw the translation of the Septuagint. So what's the Septuagint? So after the Jews returned from exile, many of them came back to Jerusalem, but another large portion of them went to all the known world and settled in various places. So it's called the diaspora. Diaspora just means to scatter. And so they went to all these different places, and they began to assimilate into their local cultures. And many of them lost um, Hebrew as their as their language, and they began to speak Greek and read Greek. And so a group of scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, around the third century, um, around the second or third century BC, translated the Old Testament into Greek so that these, these Hellenistic or Hellenized Jews that had been assimilated into Greek culture could read scriptures. This would have been the version of the Old Testament that all of the early Christian congregations would have been most familiar with, except for the Jewish church in Jerusalem, but even many of them would have been Hellenized. Um, probably the most famous of these Hellenized Jews in the New Testament would have been Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. He grew up in Tarsus in southern Turkey. Um, that would have been a Hellenistic Jewish community. And so the Septuagint would have been the form of the Old Testament that he was most familiar with, although he almost certainly spoke Hebrew as well as a good Pharisee. So the Septuagint's an incredibly important document. It helps us to understand the Old Testament. It helps us to understand the New Testament. Um, also during this time period was the writing of a group of documents called the Dead Sea Scrolls. So some of you remember back in the 60s, there was this goat herder in Israel, a little boy chasing his goats. He was looking for a lost goat. He throws a rock into a cave and hears pots break. So he goes in to investigate, and he finds all these pots scattered on the floor of this cave, and they're full of scrolls. And so he goes and tells his parents, and they notify authorities, and eventually the Jewish um, historical authorities show up, and they begin investigating and researching these documents, and they suddenly realize that this was a massive cache of documents that was hidden there by a group of scribes called the Essenes. So during... during uh, it, by the time of the, the first century in the second temple, Jews, 
there was basically four different groups of Jews. Josephus called these the four philosophies of Judaism. You had the Pharisees, with which we're familiar. We kind of give them a bad time, but these were the men of the people. They were the teachers of the law. They were the teachers of the people. Today, they would have been like evangelical pastors in skinny jeans. They weren't perfect, but they did the best they could. And we give them a bad time for giving Jesus a bad time, but their job was to protect the people and make sure that they were being taught correctly. And they didn't think Jesus was who he said he was. So they were doing their job. There were jerks about it, but that's a whole other story. Then you had the Sadducees. They were sad, you see, because they only held to the first five books of Moses. The rest of the Old Testament they, 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 they disregarded as not being inspired. This was the priestly class. So this would have been, um, this would have been Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. Um, Zechariah possibly may have been a Sadducee, but I think probably not, because along with disregarding everything but the five books of Moses, they, they didn't believe in anything miraculous. So they didn't believe in miracles, they didn't believe in healing, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in life after death or a resurrection. So when the Sadducees came to Jesus with their whole thing about the, 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 the brother married a, a wife and he died and his six other brothers married her and then on the last day when they're resurrected, Jesus is like, you guys don't even know the scriptures. You're coming to, this, to me with this wild scenario that you don't even believe because you don't believe in the resurrection. So leave me alone. Then you have the Essenes, which were these radical, almost like Jewish monks. They lived in these caves in this region of Qumran, and they were, they were vehemently passionate about copying and preserving the Old Testament and, and making sure that every copy they made of an Old Testament document was absolutely 100% perfect. And so one of the things that we gain from the Dead Sea Scrolls is a copy of the 69th chapter of Isaiah in one giant massive scroll. It's called the Great Scroll of Isaiah. It's on display at the museum in Tel Aviv. And, and these, um, the, this scroll was about 1,000 years older than the previous oldest scroll of Isaiah that we had. Because when they had a document that wasn't perfect, it would be destroyed. And as older scrolls became tattered to the point that they weren't readable, they were destroyed. So we don't have massive numbers of Old Testament scrolls out there. But in comparing this great scroll of Isaiah with the next oldest scroll, which was a thousand years of hand copying later, the only significant difference was a change of spelling of one word. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are incredibly significant today because they virtually nail the coffin shut on the reliability of the Old Testament. The New Testament is completely different, how we know the New Testament is reliable, but the Dead Sea Scrolls are incredibly important in our understanding of the Old Testament. And then the fourth group of people, the fourth philosophy as they were known was the Zealots. They came around about, this, about the second century BC, probably grew up in the region of Galilee, and these were the guys that... Um, these were the guys that were vehemently passionate about making sure that, that, that Israel and Jerusalem would be cleansed of any infidels, any unbelievers, so that Messiah could be ushered in. Um, Jesus had at least one zealot among his inner circle, Simon the Zealot, or for you chosen fans, Simon Z. Um, and so anyway, the Dead Sea Scrolls, written by the Essenes. And there were other important things that happened, but from a Christian perspective, 
It was four centuries without any word from God, punctuated by Matthew, by Malachi, and on the other end, the foretelling of John the Baptist to Zechariah. And you guys remember the story in Luke 1. Zechariah is a priest. He's a, a Levite. His wife, Elizabeth, was a descendant of Aaron herself. And so he goes into the temple to fulfill his duties at the holy altar in the Holy of Holies. And, and he has a vision. The angel Gabriel appears to him. And everyone was astonished because it had been 400 years since they had heard from God. And then all of a sudden, Gabriel appears to Mary. And then Gabriel appears to Joseph. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is born. And we romanticize this with angels we have heard on high, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament, one of the important names of God is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts the commander of the armies of heaven. The shepherds weren't terrified because they saw the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. The shepherds, the, the, the shepherds were terrified because the armies of the kingdom of heaven were standing in review, supervising the birth of the, of the, of the son of the king, the son of Jehovah Sabaoth, the commander of the armies of heaven. The silence had been broken. And in the Old Testament, God appeared to Moses and talked to him as a man talks with a friend, the Bible tells us. And throughout the Old Testament, he spoke to the prophets. But now in the New Testament, the silence has been, not only has the silence been broken, but now God walks among us and talks to us openly as a man talks with a friend. One of the key emphases of, the, of, of John's gospel is Jesus was a prophet not like Moses. Jesus was a prophet greater than Moses. God spoke to Moses one-on-one -on -one as a man talks to a friend, but Jesus spoke to all of us openly without need to go through a priest or an intercessor. With the, with the coming of Gabriel to Zechariah, the silence was broken. So of all the events of this time, the only one to be commemorated and celebrated is the events leading to the celebration of Hanukkah. And for a lot of people, that might be enough to get our attention. So, you know, why is Hanukkah important? For some people, that's enough. That was enough to get my attention, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago when I first started thinking about this. Some people have suggested that since it's mentioned in the New Testament and Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, then we should celebrate Hanukkah. You know, WWJD. You guys remember those bracelets back in the 80s? Well, some of you don't. Some of you weren't born yet. Um, but you can ask your parents. Um, well, I mean, WWJD is okay up to a certain point, but, you know, I don't think very many of us are celebrating Sabbath on Friday night. WWJD, what would Jesus be doing on Friday night? He'd be celebrating Shabbat. And what would be Jesus be doing all day Saturday? He'd be going to synagogue. You know, we don't do that. Um, and that's okay. So the notion of, you know, we should be excited about Hanukkah because Jesus celebrated Hanukkah is a little bit weak sauce. We don't celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, but Jesus did. Others suggest that this is a holiday that reminds us of those who are faithful to God despite persecution and thus is worthy of celebration. And I think that's something we can probably all get behind. Uh, get behind. Hanukkah is also called the Festival of Lights 
Again, the, 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 the key thing in the, in, in the celebration is this notion of the miracle of the oil, that there was only enough oil for one day, but it burned for eight days. A traditional Jewish menorah has seven candle stands. The center one is taller, and that commemorates the days of creation. Menorah is used during uh, celebrating Shabbat. So the Sabbath celebration, Shabbat, is commemorating creation and, and celebrating family. But the Hanukkah menorah is called a Hanukkah. It has nine candle stands because it recognizes the eight days the oil burned with a central candle. So the word light in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word or, transliterated O-W-R, pronounced like an or for a boat or iron or. It's used 123 times in 112 verses. The first occurrence is in Genesis 1-3 with the creation of light. Along with references to physical illumination, it's also used metaphorically referring to happiness or joy, goodness, moral rightness, and to Jehovah as the light of Israel. Indeed, the sacred lamp in the temple or tabernacle, which principally burned at night, was a symbol of Yahweh's eternal presence among his people, representing the Shekinah glory of God. And the story of the calling of Samuel in 1 Samuel is told that these events, that as these events were happening, the lamp of God had not yet been put out. And some people read that and say, well, this is just talking about God's continued work and presence in Israel. The lamp of God has not yet been put out. But the reality is God was not working in Israel at that time because the priest Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were doing evil. And God was not working. It says there were not many visions and revelations from God at this time until Samuel. But mentioning the lamp of God had not yet gone out simply points us to the fact that these events happened at night. And the lamp of God was lit at night because the sun was not out to remind us of his presence. So throughout scripture, the principle of light is used to speak of God's goodness and wisdom as well as his presence and guidance in our life. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about lighting a candle and putting it on a stand, not covering it with a bowl. Let your light shine before men. In John 8, 12, Jesus proclaimed himself to be the light of the world and that those who follow him would never walk in darkness. This, he spoke this during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles um, was the high holy feast day in Jerusalem. Uh, it, 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 it was said in ancient times that you have not been to Jerusalem, you have not seen Jerusalem, and yet less you've seen Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. It was this series of, of, of sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice, and it was singing and dancing and feasting and celebrating. And at night, they had this, these massive candelabras that they would set out in this court of the temple that had these, each, each candelabra had these four massive bowls of oil that would be lit and would be burning. And the, 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 the walls of the temple, you may recall, were covered with gold. And that's why when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in AD 70, they pried all the stones of the temple apart because as they burned the temple, the gold melted and flowed into the cracks. And so they pried the stones apart to recover the gold. The Romans did, thus fulfilling Jesus' prophecy about not one stone being left on another. So here Jesus is standing 
in front of the temple, perhaps at night as it's lit up by these massive candelabra reflecting off the gold walls and says, I am the light of the world. Since this is happening during the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates Israel's wandering in the wilderness, his meaning is clear. He was the pillar of fire in the wilderness. You remember during the day, there was a pillar of cloud that guided them, and at night there was a pillar of fire that guided them. When the pillar stood still, the Jews waited. When it moved, they followed. He guided and protected them. In the same way, Jesus, as the light of the world, means that he lights our way and guides us. And if we follow him, we will never go astray. And if we don't follow him, we'll come to ruin. You remember they sent the 10 spies into Canaan, with the 12 spies into Canaan to spy out the land, and they came back. Joshua and Caleb gave a good report. The 10 spies gave a bad report. Who did they follow? They followed the 10 spies instead of the two. And as a result, they wandered in the wilderness for an additional 38 years until that entire generation died off. When we follow the light, when we follow Jesus' guidance, we never go astray. If we don't follow him, we come to ruin. John is the only gospel writer to mention both Hanukkah and this saying of Jesus, I'm the light of the world. Significantly, he also opens his gospel with his creation account, which also mentions light. So let's turn for a couple minutes and let's read John 1, 1 through 9, and see quickly what we can figure out about this idea of light. So John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Other translations say has not overcome it has not mastered it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. When we Accept Jesus into our life. His life comes into our life, and his light shines through us. People are able to see him living through us, and his light shines in our darkness because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, not did not overcome it, not will not overcome it, but cannot overcome it because the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. That's what John was trying to convey here. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. By following the light of Jesus, we will never walk in darkness, but we'll be displaying his light to everyone around us. By following the light of Jesus, all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a dark world and in dark places but suddenly we're not, we're not afraid of the dark anymore. And people around us 
suddenly notice something different about our lives because the light of Christ is shining through us. And in a dark and hurting world, the light that shines in the darkness will never be overcome by that darkness. See, Hanukkah is a celebration of the miraculous deliverance of Israel in the face of an enemy who utterly despised both them and their God. He so, Antiochus IV, so despised them that he intentionally desecrated their temple in multiple ways. Set up a pagan altar inside the temple to Zeus, not just any Roman god, or not just any Greek god, but the highest of the Greek pantheon, Zeus, the father of all the gods. And then he took that most despised and despicable of all unclean animals, a pig, and sacrificed them on the holy altar. It's staggering to imagine how horrible the insult would have been and what he could have done to make it worse. But not only did God deliver them, but the miracle of the oil showed what John would tell us 200 years later, that the darkness can never slough out the light of God's presence. See, holidays can be really tough times for some folks. In some cases, we've lost loved ones, and we're sitting around the table, and their absence is keenly felt, and it's painful. And there's other times where we feel obligated to be around people we just really rather not, because they've hurt us, sometimes in very significant ways. And just being with them can be painful. But see, Hanukkah commemorates a very dark time in Israel's history through which God chose to move mightily. And had it not been as dark, God could not have moved as mightily as he did. So as such, Hanukkah is a reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. That the darker the night, the brighter the light shines. Last week, some of you guys met our friend Marla, who was out here visiting and spent Thanksgiving with us. She was one of the bumpus hounds. Seen if you were paying attention. There it went. Um, and so one night, the, the kids were at a basketball game playing in the band, and Marcia was off refereeing. Um, and so I took her on a hike. She wanted to do a lot of hiking. She's originally from Colorado, although she now lives in Orlando, but she's been all over the world. Um, and, and she wanted to go hiking, so we, I took her up to the D. Um, and, um, and we got a late start, so we had a couple of headlamps. The headlamp I gave her was brand new, but, you know, a lot of times you buy new stuff and the batteries aren't any good. And so her, lamp, her headlight wasn't working. Her headlamp wasn't working, but I had one. But it was one of those crisp, clear nights with a bright half moon. You turn your lights off, cast big, huge shadows. And if you're hiking on flat ground, we could have hiked just fine without any lights at all. But, you know, when you're coming down the D, you need a little bit more light so that an ambulance is not involved. Um, but it was just a reminder that the darker the night, the less light you really need to be able to see what's going on. And the darker the place that we find ourselves, the more that God's light shines through us even better. See, the light, the dark, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. This is the truth that John spells out that was illustrated beautifully 200 years before and is celebrated every year during Hanukkah. And while I'm not suggesting that we light a menorah and spin a dreidel and do all these other things associated with celebrating Hanukkah, I am suggesting that we internalize this truth, 
that we let it guide us into the coming year to trust God with more and bigger things in our lives. Because think for a moment, what if the priests, as they're cleaning the temple and they discover there's only enough oil for one day, if they'd have been like, oh crap, I guess we'll just have to wait until we get some more oil made. But instead they lit the lamp and the lamp burned for eight days. This was an absolutely unprecedented event. I mean, yeah, there was Elijah and the widow at Zarephim where she had oil and she had flour and God made it last during the, the famine. But this notion of a light burning in the temple when there wasn't enough oil was absolutely new and unprecedented. So what might have resulted if they hadn't trusted God for doing something beyond their experience or expectations? And I turn that around to you. What do you need to trust God for so that your light can shine beyond what you think possible, beyond your experience and expectations? In other words, what's God trying to do in your life in this coming year that is just so far beyond anything you've imagined before? And you're struggling to even see how it's even possible. Just like the priest struggled to see how this, this light was burning, even though there wasn't enough oil and how they struggled to see how they were gonna be rescued from the Seleucids, and yet they were. And so I want us to think about that. Um, if you've got something that you're struggling with right now, and you need someone to talk to and pray with, our prayer team's gonna come down, and they'll be here to pray with you. If, 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 you, if you have something in your life that you need God to show up for, our prayer team will be here, and someone will be here to talk with you and pray with you. And if you're listening to me talk about all this and you honestly have no idea what I'm talking about because you've never, you've never accepted Christ into your life. You don't have the light in, your, in yourself. The light of Christ is not in you. Then come down and talk to a member of our prayer team and we'll help you to understand that and help you to move on. That's it for today's teaching. Hey, here's an idea. Share today's message with a friend or family member. If you're listening from outside our fellowship, we'd love to meet you. Visit graceid.org and hit the contact form to get in touch. We'd also love for you to join us. You can even check us out on Facebook Live by searching Facebook for Grace Church Rupert ID. Learn more and plug in at graceid.org. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Grace Community Church.